I want you to turn once again to the book of Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, I want to share another message on the same text we used last week. Our title last week was The Challenge of Separation. I got it from Exodus 33, beginning in verse 12. Moses here is speaking to the Lord. And Moses said to the Lord, See, yet thou sayest to me, Bring up this people, and you have not let me know who you will send with me. And yet you have said, I know you by name, and that I have found grace in your sight. Now, therefore, Moses said, I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. I mean, one man leading all of these people doesn't know what to do. God said, you're going to do it. He said, talk to me, Lord. And then he said down in verse 14, God said, my presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest something we all would love. If we have experienced that, you'll really want to keep that. My presence shall go with you and give you rest. And Moses said to him, if thy presence go not with me, then don't take me anywhere. Let me go not up hence. Verse 16, for wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? That's a question. How will it be known on this planet in Shelby County, in Shelbyville in America, in Kentucky? How shall it be known that we who call ourselves Christians, how shall it be known that we who talk about grace have actually found grace, favor, singled out by God for favor? How will it be known, how will anybody know that such a thing has happened to us? We're not better than anybody else, but God has chosen us, and we are his, and his grace and favor will rest upon us, and there's got to be evidence. You can talk about this and sing about amazing grace all you want to, but there has to be some evidence. So he said, how will it be known that I have found grace in your sight? And he said, is it not that you go with us? So shall, on the basis of that, so shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. We don't leave the earth and get away from them. We're amongst them. They're around us. Where we work and where we go and in shopping and wherever, they're all around us. But we're not a part of them, and they cannot be a part of us because God makes a difference with us over them. How shall it be known that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight, but your presence is with us? Remember the verses in John chapter 15 when Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abide in you? He said, there is such a thing as an abiding, a dwelling, a presence. If God dwells with you, if God dwells in you, is not his presence there? And the evidence of his life living in you is that you live a different life than that everybody else lives. You act differently. You talk differently. You're different. You're different because he's changing me. He Guess what God does? He turns you from darkness to light, from night to day. And he tells you, if you want to maintain favor and rest with God, then he said in 2 Corinthians 6, you've got to come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean thing? What relationship does dark have with light? Righteousness with unrighteousness, good with bad, the devil with God. How can you have any relationship there and maintain the presence of God in your life, actively working, putting you over in his grace, leading you in a wonderful way? How can it be if you're mingled with the world? See, this message has been hidden in here for years. We read the historical account, but in principle, God is bringing something to his church in the last days because these things were written, the Bible says, for our learning. We're supposed to see something here and make application of it in our life today. Otherwise, this was a dead letter, but it's a living word. It gives us a historical account. It's like Noah's Ark was a historical account, but there's a spiritual principle there. 
there's things here that we're supposed to see. How will it be known that we be separated from all the people? One translator says, so shall we be distinguished from all the people. We will be a distinct people. Peter writes of it being a kingdom of priests, holy, set apart, living stones, and so forth. This is the kind of people we are, a peculiar people. That is, a distinctly different kind of people. Born the same way everybody else is in the same world, same everything, except the presence of God makes a huge difference in your life if he's there. Now, we can try to act like he's there when he isn't because we can learn the methods and the ways of church and try to employ certain verses of Scripture in our life to show others that we go to church and we know something about God. That never means that he's walking with you because when he is with you, He's changing you. Your life is different. Your conscience begins to affect you all the time. You repent a lot more than you ever did because of your convictions. He shows you things that bothers you. Doesn't bother other people, bothers you. Because you're his. Because his presence is not going to abide in an unholy temple. He's cleaning it up. You all know what I'm saying? He's cleaning up this temple because it's going to represent him. And when he's done with it, it'll be a glorious place without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. See, the content of the message of separation, which is not a popular message at all, for so many people who don't want to be restrained, you know, it limits your Christianity. It's legalistic, and you feel so bad because you can't do this, you can't do that, and you can't go there, you can't wear that, you can't act like that, can't celebrate that. Man, this, how can we win people to the world if we're not a part of them? Right. So they don't like this message. I've never met many people in Christianity who stayed with this. Most people I've ever met have heard it. But when it comes right down to living separated from the world, a lot of people don't, and a lot of us struggle with some things, but God's not done yet. And so we need to hear it, and we need to keep hearing it. We need to challenge ourselves, examine ourselves. We need to judge ourselves. We need to reach verdict against ourselves that we're going to do it God's way and we're going to let this happen. Now go to Joshua. Joshua chapter 9. We were there last week. They've crossed the Jordan. They've defeated Jericho. After Jericho, after a stumble a bit, they defeated Ai, which is not very far from a place called Gibeon. And they're going to go fight the Gibeonites because in verses 1... In 2 of chapter 9, they knew that the Israelites were coming. The people of the land were scared. They thought, oh, brother. They said as much over in verse 24 that we knew you were going to take the land. We knew you were going to destroy us. So to spare themselves death, they used deceit. They acted wily. And was that verse 4? They used deception. You remember the verse in the Bible said the children of this age are wiser than the children of light. The story of a man who was going to be fired because he did not give a good account of his master's work, of his company. He said, oh boy, what will I do? I can't work. I'm ashamed of work. So he goes out. He takes all the people that owed his boss a lot of money and he, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll let you off the hook for half price. They said, man, thank you very much, but don't forget it. So when he got fired, people owed him something. In other words, he was planning his future because he knew it was coming. He said, the children of light don't. They act like the world's never going to end. They can live any way they want to, and they're never going to be judged. And there's another little picture like that here. These Gibeonites, they dressed up in old clothes, had old wineskins and old moldy bread, and they traveled over there, and they acted like they'd been on a long journey. And, oh, we've heard of you people and your God, and we want you to, to have mercy on us. We'll be your servants. He said, where are you from? Oh, a long way. You can tell we've been on the road all day. Look at our clothes. Look at our food. They tried to give that kind of evidence, and they swallowed it because he said in verse 14, and the men took of their victuals, that is, they ate a meal with them and did not ask counsel at the mouth of the Lord. They didn't even question whether these people were being deceptive or not. They were so humble. The world does that to people. It's such a pleasant little humbling, loving thing to do, to feed the poor souls. 
What did God tell his people when they went in the land? What did he tell his people specifically to do about the inhabitants of Canaan's fair and happy land or the politically incorrect promised land? What did he tell his disciples to do? He said in Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 20, amongst several verses, he said, when you go in, I want you to utterly destroy them all. Leave nothing, everything that breathes, destroy it. Here's what will happen, because it's the type of the world. He said, if you leave any of them alive, eventually they will turn you away from me. And we're so spiritually saying, there's no way that's going to happen to me. Uh-uh, I am in for the long haul. Seem like I've heard people sort of say that 20, 30 years ago. Can't find them today. It was pretty easy how easy they walked away. The world's a real threat to everybody in this room. The world. Because if you love it, then you're an enemy of God. It's that simple. You can't embrace the world as what you're depending on and say at the same time you're depending on God. You can't serve God and man. You can't do that. We're going to have to make distinctions in our lives about who we're serving and what we're separated from. And that's why we don't like the message of separation. So many people are mingling with the world that when you begin to point out that that's wrong, they don't like it. They don't like talking about Christmas this time of year. You know, the warmth of a fireplace and all the goodies that go with it. Chestnuts roasting on, and all the songs and here comes and everybody seems so happy until the presents are open on Christmas Day and then they're broke, they're mad, everybody's fussing, fighting. We tell people, that's not what we do. We do come away from all that stuff. God never gave us that to do. We don't celebrate any day. There's no day that we celebrate. There is no day. We're done with days and seasons. We are as Gentiles. We're done. So we come out from amongst all this stuff. We don't follow the schemes of man and the traditions of man. Not because we want to be different, but it's just that this is not what God has given us to do. And that's a great challenge if you have a family that's big on the holidays and now you realize you can't do it. I remember years ago up in Indianapolis at a meeting I had up there, two ladies came up afterwards meeting one night. It was in October when I usually taught on the occult. And they said, oh, my, we're chairman of the Halloween committee in this big church and said, we don't know what to do now. And I said, well, I said, you'll have to do what your conscience bears witness to because you will be persecuted for righteousness sake. And people who don't want to know that that's wrong don't want you to tell them why it's wrong because they want to do it. They're geared to do it. They want to do it. Everybody else is doing it. They don't want to be persecuted. But if you don't do it, they'll persecute you. So you got to sit down and count the cost whether you really want to go this way or not. I said, Christianity is kind of cold. No, it's not cold at all. It's just that we are so involved in things we don't want to give up. And so God says, you've got to separate yourself. You've got to come out from amongst all of that stuff and be separated. Well, they made a covenant with these people, these deceivers. They made this covenant, verse 14 and 15. And if you'll follow me there, they did not ask counsel. But in verse 15, Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them. A league is like a covenant, an agreement to let them live and to let them be in their country under their oversight. He made a league with them and he let them live and the princes of the congregation swear unto them. That is, we will not hurt you. We will not kill you. And verse 16 this morning, follow me now. And it came to pass at the end of three days after they had made a league with them that they heard that they were their neighbors and that they dwelt among them. Now, what does that mean? Well, God told us to destroy them, and here we are making a league with them, but we were deceived. That's your fault. You didn't ask counsel of the Lord because God, who can tell you when to fight battles and when to not to fight battles, could have told you who these people were, but you didn't ask him. Well, verse 17, and the children of Israel journeyed and came into their cities, the Gibeonite cities. There's three or four of them on the third day. Now, their cities were Gibeon, Shephira, Beeroth, and Kirjath-Jerim. And the children of Israel smote them not, because the princes of the congregation had swore unto them by the Lord, by the Lord God of Israel, and all the congregation murmured against their princes. 
Now, we've already had a church split. There's already trouble in River City, as the thing said. There have always been dedicated people in the mass of God's people who don't want to do it another way. They want to do it God's way. Then they realize that the leaders have made a league with people we're not supposed to make leagues with. We're not supposed to be in cahoots with these people. Now, instead of us being able to obey God on his terms and get rid of all these people, now we have to live with them. And they're idols and they're gods. We can't destroy these people or their culture. That kind of poison is going to live in the very midst of our country. Oh, boy, they murmured, this is not right. I wonder how many of them would have said, well, let's just sneak in there and take a few of them out. I'll tell you what, they might have made the rule up at the top and everybody swore to it, but I'm not going to do it. One of them comes over my house, I'm going to get rid of him. Well, can you do that? Now, wait a minute. If you can't do that, why can't you do that? Are you telling me that when you give your word to somebody that you can't break it? That your word is your bond? That if you said you will do it, that you don't have to ask anymore, will you really do it? That you'll do it because you simply said you would? That if you told me such and such is true, then I should be able to believe it simply because you said it was. I don't need to investigate it. If you said it was, it was. Because you're a Christian and you will not lie. And if you said something, you will not change that. Are you telling me that? That we are so bound to covenants and laws that we cannot violate them at any time? Would God be angry with us if we did? All right, put your fingers there. I'm going to show you something. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 21. It's not very far to the right now. Don't go too fast. 2 Samuel chapter 21. Now, when you get to 2 Samuel chapter 21, read verse 1. This is in the reign of King David. Not King Saul, but King David. Who was the first king that Israel ever had? Saul. Who was the second king? Who was the third king? What happened after the third king? Solomon. The kingdom split. Remember? Rehoboam, Jeroboam. Anyway, it says, Then there was a famine in the days of David three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said, I don't know how he said it, but he said it. It is for Saul and for his bloody house because he slew the Gibeonites. Now, who are Gibeonites? They're a tribe of Amorites who deceived the Israelites when the Israelites went into that politically incorrect promised land. And they so deceived them that they made a covenant with them not to slay them. And Saul, because he was a people pleaser, he was one of these head and shoulders guys, big fella. He was so wanted to please the people, and the people didn't like Gibeonites. You know, in the land of Israel today, there are still Amorites in the land. Ishmaelites, whatever you want to call those ites and ics and ticks, they're still in the land. They're still causing trouble. They never will stop causing trouble because a long time ago, they didn't do it God's way. So there was a famine in the days of David. Now, this is a long time later, a famine. This is quite a bit of time later. And David said, why are we having a famine? How do you know that you don't have famines just because it's famine season? A famine comes as a curse. You're not supposed to have famines. He said to God, this is not supposed to be. It's supposed to be well with us. The promises you have made to us should not only be seen and evidenced among us, but we shouldn't have curses. We're not supposed to be cursed. So what's going on, Lord? What happened? And God said, it is because of Saul. You mean the king before me? Yes. He was a bloody man. He slew the Gibeonites. Uh, so that's why we're having this curse is because Saul violated a league made by Joshua in chapter 9. Yes, exactly. You see, when you give your word, that word is binding from one generation to the next.
It goes on and it goes on. If you said they could stay, they can stay. Verse 3, wherefore David said unto the Gibeonites, this is a whole story, I don't want to read all of this, what shall I do for you and how shall I make the atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, we will have no silver nor gold of Saul. We don't want any money, nor of his house. Neither for us shalt thou kill any man in Israel. We don't want you to destroy them for us. And David said, well, then what do you want me to do? He said, we want seven of his sons. We want to slay them. They answered the king, the man that consumed us and that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining any of the coast of Israel. Let seven of his sons be delivered unto us and we will hang them up unto the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose. And the king said, what will he do? What did King David say? I will do it. Can you imagine how difficult that might have been? If you can put yourself in the try to as best you can in the context of this age and time and customs and culture. And the King David who says, what do you want us to do? We're having this problem because of what Saul did. said, this is what we want. We don't want his goal. We don't want you to kill anybody for us on our behalf. We want you to give us seven of his sons. We want to hang them up in Gibeah. Do you think all the Israelites around there would like that? David said, I will do it. So he goes to Saul's house, the king's kids, and he gathers seven of them. He spares the one that he loved and kept in, in his own house, but he got these other ones, and they gave them over, and they hung them up. Read the rest of the story. It's a really interesting story about how things worked out and how they ended and all of that. But this curse that came on the Israelites was because they broke a covenant. In other words, if I can bring it down, it's clear. They did not keep their word. I wonder if it's possible for us in our families to give our word to somebody and then violate that word and invite a problem in our life. Or is our word that important? Exactly how much stock does God put on our word? These Gibeonites, if they were going to be in trouble and somebody tried to hurt them, do we have to help them? That'd be a good way to get rid of them, have somebody fight them and destroy them all. Look in chapter 10, I think they tried to do that. It came to pass when all these kings in Jerusalem heard how Joshua had taken Ai and utterly destroyed it as he had done to Jericho and her king and so forth, and how the inhabitants of Gideon had made peace with Israel. You don't do that now. Then they feared greatly because Gibeon had a great city as one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and all the men thereof were mighty. Therefore, these five kings said, come, let us go fight against Gibeah. Let's destroy them for being traitors. And then this is the story in which all these five kings had quite an army. See, they were still around in the land. They hadn't destroyed these people yet. They came up to fight against Gibeah and destroy it. And the Israelites could have said, like, some would have said, well, here's a way to get rid of them. Let these kings finish them off, and then when they get done with them, we'll go and fight the kings. But then your heart's not right. You let them stay in your country, they're on your soil, and when an enemy comes on your soil, you've got to help your neighbor. So they fought, and they began to smite these people. This is that story in the Bible where Joshua said, the sun to be still in the valley of Agilon, moon be still, and it stayed for a whole day. The sun has stayed still and for a day. And it said at that particular time that there was no day like that before or after it and that the Lord hearkened to the voice of a man. And they smote them utterly from the rising of the sun through a day that didn't end and through a part of another day. They just kept killing them. Slaying them all day long. Thousands and thousands of people. All because of Gibeonites. They shouldn't have had to lose any of their soldiers in the battle, and you know they did. I'm sure there was a lot of mamas crying because her son died saving Gibeonites. We should have destroyed them. Well, we didn't. And this is part of the price that I guess you're going to pay because your word means you're going to have to jump in there and take care of things. How big a deal this morning as Christians, how big a deal is our word? You say, well, you know, today in our society, for your word to really, really mean something, you got to say, look, I swear. 
I, I swear to God, I, I swear on my life, cross my heart, hope to die, stick needles in my eye. I, I mean, we try so very hard today to convince people we're telling the truth because we're so used to nobody being really sure. I'm not being sure anybody's always honest. That is, that they say things, but they really don't mean it. They say things to get things. They say things to get hard. They say things to sell something, but they don't mean it. Even in a court of law, they stick a Bible out there, the same court that's ruling God out of schools. What a hypocritical thing. And you lay your hand on the Bible, and you're supposed to swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. They don't even believe in God. You might as well lay your hand on a Captain Marvel comic book. Doesn't mean anything. People do it because it's what you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they sit there and they perjure themselves. They lie and they lie and they lie, but they do it with such emotion. Politicians, all these great promises and, and you can count out, and they do it with such vote-getting emotions. They don't do it. Had no intention to. Preachers who do what they do and all that, they didn't mean it. We're used to it in our society where we listen to people say stuff, but we don't really believe it. Here's what the Bible says to us, though. This is where we ought to locate ourselves in the midst of ourselves, amongst ourselves. We are separated people, supposedly. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or in deed, whatever you do in word, verbal, or deed, actual, physical. Do it all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks unto God by him. Now, as I understand that, when I say something, or when I promise something, or when I give my word about something, it has to be like I'm giving my word to God that I will do what I said for Bill, Joe, Jack, or Jane. The basis for me being sincere about what I'm saying is my relationship with God. His presence being with me compels me to always tell the truth and not distort anything but to tell the truth. Now, that's how I understand it. One of my great weaknesses in my life, you confess your faults, is teasing. My poor wife, and I, I should say my rich wife, because she says I ain't poor. But anyway, if I say I'm rich and people think you're bragging, so my wife, I'm always teasing her and tell her this or that. I teased Naomi one time when she was little, and she said, Daddy, teasing is lying. You know, go stay in the corner. <laughs> teasing is lying. Well, you know, it is. It is. You think about it, when you've done it, Every day for 40, 50, well, more than 50 years, you kind of get used to it, and you do it without trying. But teasing is lying. Mm -hmm. Folks in the South are big teasers. We just cut up all the time. Now, I don't mean we're trying to be dishonest. We're just trying to be friendly and have something to laugh about because we like to laugh and have a good time. But sometimes we say things that, we mean to be serious, but people think you're teasing. It's like foolish conversations or vain jangling. It's just stuff that's not necessary and it's dishonest. And so when you say something as a Christian, you got to know that not only is God listening, but whoever you're talking to is also. And if anybody should be taken at their word, it should be us. Sermon on the Mount. Put your finger wherever you are and go to Matthew 5. We'll come back later. Matthew 5. This is what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 and verse 33. Again, you have heard it hath been said by them of old, thou shalt not forswear thyself. That is, thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not say something you don't mean. But you shall perform to the Lord your oaths, because that's who your relationship is. But, Jesus said, for Christians, but I say this, unto you. Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, neither by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the great city of God, or by grandma's Bible, 
Verse 16, neither shalt thou swear by thy head because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yes, yes, and no, no, for whatever is more than this is evil. You're a Christian. Your word is your bond. If you tell Gibeonites, you can live in the land, I won't destroy you. We will not let you be destroyed. They ought to be able to plant their gardens and leave their doors unlocked all night. Because they know that you cannot change your word. But again, our mindset in this hour is that we don't think like that. I say we because it's probably true with far too many of us. Yeah, they said it, but I don't know if they'll do it or not. Well, he said he would, but I don't know if he will or not. He said he would be here, but I don't know if he will or not. They said they would buy, but I don't know if they will or not. They said they would fix it. I don't know if they will or not. They said bring it in Thursday, they'll do it, but I don't know if they will or not. That's ingrained in us. I don't care if you're a Christian or not. It's ingrained in us. And it's not very often that we say, well, such and such and such, such will be here in the morning. They're going to do this. Well, how do you know? Because they said they would. I remember years ago, a man asked me to come and talk to him about something. Like on a night they had church, and I couldn't make it that night. So I called the next day to say to reschedule. And he said, you said you would be here last night. Uh, yeah. He said, well, you said you would, but, but you weren't here. My thinking was, come on. But he was right. You said you'd be here. I had things ready for you to when you would be here for whatever we were going to do. I was waiting for you because you said you would be here. And I never forgot that. To this day, I thought, you know, he really took me at my word. But shouldn't we? We don't get up every morning and God say, all right, lay your hand on this Bible. Now that your sleeping's done for the day, lay your hand on this Bible and say this. No, we wake up under oath. We get up in the morning. I mean this in a right sense. We wake up in the morning, we're under oath. To whoever we talk to. You don't have to tell everybody everything you know. But if you say anything, it's got to be your word. It's got to be written as though God spoke it. We'd be imitators of God, aren't we? God is not a man that he should lie, neither son of man that he should repent. If he said it, he will do it. If he spoke it, he will make it good. Now, that's the kind of people we're supposed to be like him. That's the one who lives in us, who is changing us to be like him. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I can't lie. I can't tell you I'll be there and not be there. I couldn't as a boss. Some of you guys are bosses or you're self-employed. You tell people I'll be there Monday afternoon at 3 o'clock, and you don't show up. Why not? Well, I had too much. Well, then you should have said I can't be there at 3 o'clock. Well, I wanted to keep it. I know, but you're misleading people. Now, see, I haven't pointed out anybody because I don't know anybody does it. You've got to be the kind of person that your word is your bond. That even Gibeonites can trust you. Even those people can trust you. James 5 and verse 12, in relation to Sermon on the Mount here, Matthew 5, James 5 says the same thing. He says, but above all things, my brethren, swear not neither by heaven nor by earth, neither by any other oath. But lest your yes be yes and your no be no, he said this, lest you fall into condemnation. And the Greek word for condemnation is hypocrisy. If you say yes and you don't do yes, and you said no and you didn't mean no, then in a sense the Bible calls you a hypocrite, and that would condemn you. Our word is our bond. It is so binding that we have illustrations in the Bible to show us how serious. Remember Jephthah? J-E-P-H-T-H-A-H, Jephthah. Jephthah, in Judges 11, had said that in winning this battle, he said the first thing that came out of his house, he was making a burnt offering to the Lord. God gave him a great victory. And Jephthah, when he came home from the victory, the first thing come running out of his house was his daughter. Now, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do with that? Listen to this. And it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, 
Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low. I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. What's the moral of that story? Be careful what you say. Don't write a bunch of checks that you can't cash. Don't extend yourself to where you can't fulfill what you said. And why would anybody say, I'll sacrifice to burn off the first thing that came out of my house, like maybe the dog was going to come run out first or something. It's his daughter. We don't know what happened. I can only tell you that it's interesting. Or one time in fighting the Philistines, Saul, who was a little bit beside himself anyway, he said, there'll be no man eat anything until we've killed them all. There's a curse. Curse to be anybody that eats anything. Jonathan, his son, never heard him say that. So he came into this big wad of honey. He dipped his spear in there. And oh, man, because the people were faint. And he said, oh, somebody said, Jonathan, your dad said that anybody that does that's going to die. He said, my dad made a bad decision. He said, look how bright my eyes already are because I'm invigorated by this honey. Well, when it was over, Saul said, you have to die, Jonathan, because he gave his word. Whew. He said, the army said, no, if it hadn't been for Jonathan, we wouldn't have won this battle. He shouldn't die for something like that. He didn't hear you say it in the first place. So they spared him of that. They kept him from it. I remember another story in the New Testament about a girl named Salome. Not Salome, but Salome. And she was a pretty little thing, and she wiggled herself around and enticed Herod, and she twisted and all the stuff that whatever she did, and Herod was about beside himself, and he said, girl, whoo, whatever you want, up to half of my kingdom, I'll give it to you. Did he have to stand by that? You know what she wanted? She wanted a man's head. I want you to go down there and cut the head off of John the Baptist. And Herod was scared of him. But you know what he did? He had his head cut off because he gave his word. You just don't give your word, even half of your kingdom? What if she said, I want this half right here? She would have got it because he said he'd give it. In studying this, how many times in our lives have we said, We'll do something, and we just didn't do it because, oh, I don't think that's going to work. We said we would, but we're not going to do it. See, there's something about being separated from the world that makes you so different that you measure carefully what you say you'll do and where you say you will go or whatever you commit yourself to. You be very careful. You can't just commit yourself to anything. If you do, even though it's wrong, you're bound to it. you got to hang in there with it. That's the way it works. How about vows? Are vows binding? When we take a vow, let's say, uh, when would we ever take a vow? Um, somebody help me. Oh, wedding. A wedding. Weddings are vows. It's a vow made between a young man and a young woman. And we got, again, a lot of you that are coming to marrying age and you're just about there. And you're aware of the fact that it's more or less expected of you to get married. And everybody hopes you do. Not everybody does. But, you know, we're kind of wanting to see that. How important is it that who you marry you're really willing to commit yourself to. I encourage all of you that don't marry. All you that want it that way, say amen. Well, can't get no cooperation this morning. Vows. I have a wedding journal. I was going to bring it out here and read some professional vows, but I can't read that. So I make up my own. Try to use the Bible whenever folks hear that I've married you. And the vow is that part of the ceremony, which has to be when the young man turns to his about-to-be wife, and he looks at her, most of them do, and he says to her, I will love you, I will protect you, 
I will supply your needs, whatever the specific things are that you say. And he looks her right in the eye and he says that. And then she turns to him and she says, I will honor you as my husband. I will submit to you. I will love no other man. As he said, I will love no other woman. Whatever is on there is a vows. I tell people before they can get married, before you do this, before you read this, before you follow me when I say this, are you really willing to do this? Are you really, really willing to eliminate all other women and commit yourself before God with a solemn vow to do this because God will hold you to this? men or women. And I tell them, before you get married, think about what you're about to say here in whatever, a couple weeks or a month, whenever it is, that you're going to love this woman, you're gonna love this man, you're gonna work his ways through all the difficulties, you will not cut and run, because if there's one thing that God hates, it's when you give up and quit. You don't trust in him and you divorce. You can't cut that any other way than that. That's the way the Bible says it. The reason God hates divorce is because you broke a covenant. You gave a solemn vow before God that you would do something. You turned around and said, well, I ain't going to do it now. And God hates that. Because when you take a vow, it is a vow for life. How binding is it? Listen at these words. This is what God said in Romans 7 and verse 2. For the woman which has a husband... It's bound by the law to her husband so long as he lives. Are you willing to stay with him that long? What if the day after you married him, he fell down and broke his neck? And nothing's going to happen like that. I know that. But what if somebody hit him with a car and he was injured or something and he couldn't he'd no longer be a husband, no longer be a man, no longer provide for your needs? It's not his fault now, but he can't do that. You're still going to love him? Uh-oh. You going to love him now? You going to follow your end of the deal? What if he runs off and he leaves you and goes after another woman? You going to stay true to God? You going to keep the doors of reconciliation open? You made a commitment too. There's two people made commitments. You going to quit or he going to quit? What y'all going to do? We're not doing too good. Well, what are you going to do? Can you ask counsel of the Lord? Because the Bible says a woman which has a husband is bound by the law as long as he lives. And they were in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 39. At the end of that chapter says the wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is at liberty to be married to whomsoever she will as long as they're Christian. So you see, the only thing that can break this covenant is death. I would challenge all of you, the most deeply in love group in this, whoever you are in this room, you're going to say to God, I am going to love this man if he doesn't look like this 10 years now, if he gets all out of shape <laughs> and gets about half ugly. And not knowing tomorrow, I'm committing myself to him to do everything I said I will do, whether he deserves it or not. Give me at least one little squeaky amen. Amen. And she, you marry her and she likes to eat. You didn't know it. And one day you look at her. Now, let me finish. Let me finish. She likes to eat oysters, and she wants you to take her out all the time somewhere to eat oysters. You thought I was going to say she got big, but what if she did? <laughs> and you say this, I didn't commit myself. To yes, you did. Same face. More of it, but same face. <laughs> same woman. Same woman. Same man. <laughs> Excuse me. Are you still going to honor God by how you honor his word and the vows you took to this woman, are you? Now, before you marry him or her, you do Luke 14. You sit down and count the cost whether you can conquer this or not. 
because I guarantee you, you have no clue what you're into. <laughs> that guy you married didn't walk into your life with a little instruction booklet that said, now this is what you'll get 20 years from now. You better read this. You're taking a vow. Now, I know we're laughing a little bit, but you're taking a vow, and you're committing yourself to stick to this as long as you live. I am unwilling to marry or perform a wedding for anybody if divorce is an option. Nobody. Because there's no reason for divorce to be in anybody's thinking if you're Christian. And yet the divorce rate amongst Christians is as high, I think it's a few tenths of a percent higher than the world. In other words, we're not doing any better than them. We fall apart as much as they do. We're not very separated from them because we're like them. We don't even have a tendency to work out our stuff. We can't even keep our word. My wife can't even count on me to do what I said. I can't count on her to do what she said. Your word's no good. The Bible shows that, that we have to keep our word. Otherwise... What kind of relationship do you have? How can God's presence be with you if your word's no good? Psalm 24, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his presence? Who? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, and thirdly, and has not sworn deceitfully. That's in there. We could title that, if you all are getting sermons, three conditions for abiding in the Lord. Clean hands, an honest and pure heart, and not swearing deceitfully. Deceitfully means to mislead somebody. It means to tell something less than the truth. You give a vow, you got to keep it. Turn to Ecclesiastes 5. I want you to see this. And beginning in verse 4. When thou vowest a vow unto the Lord. Let's say you say this. For the next month, I'm going to fast once a week. Now, that's not technically rule a vow, but a vow is a solemn promise the definition of vow is a solemn promise. But what promises do you make that aren't solemn? A promise by virtue of its definition is to be a meant thing. You meant to do this. You mean this solemn. It is solemn. But a vow is a special word for special occasions. It means you must really do it now. But yet, your word is your bond. When you get up in the morning, your word's your bond. Your word is your bond. So when thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. Notice this, for he hath no pleasure in fools. I looked up in the dictionary, this particular word fools in the Old Testament. And one part of a definition said such persons are usually unable to deal with life in a successful and practical way. They do dumb and ignorant things. They don't think about what they're doing. There's no wisdom in their life. They're fools. They run around by their emotions. They mess up. They fail. They weak and falter. And they just don't connect. God has no pleasure in fools. And a guy who vows the vow of the Lord doesn't mean to keep it. He's like that. And then he said, verse 5, Better it is that thou shouldest not vow than that thou should vow and not pay. Now, God has something to say about that, doesn't he? He said, it's better that you don't vow than if you do commit yourself or promise somebody something and then not do it. I don't know what the consequences is, but it wouldn't be good. If you go all the way back again to the front of your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 21, there's another verse in here about vows. And it's a little more specific than the one we just read about God's involvement in it and what breaking a promise or a vow actually means in terms of us. Verse 21, 
When thou shalt vow a vow unto the Lord thy God, thou shalt not slack to pay it, for the Lord thy God, what does it say, shall surely require it of thee. And I said, what he said? God will require that of thee, and if you don't do what you said, what does he call it? Sin. And what does sin do? It breaks that Exodus 33 line of grace, that flow of grace and favor into your life. Your sin separates between you and God. Sin. You did it your way. You ignored what he said about how you should live, and you broke that, and God says, I'm not going to have my grace flowing in your life. I'm over here. All because, all because you said you would do something and you didn't do it. What's the moral of this? Before you commit yourself to anything, think about what you're going to do. James says, because you don't know you'll even be here tomorrow, you don't even know if there'll be a tomorrow, do you? Who knows there'll be a tomorrow? You hope there's a tomorrow. There always is. But the Lord could come tonight, so there would be no tomorrows. So those of you who say tomorrow we will do this or we will do that or we'll buy or we'll sell tomorrow, you better think of it different than that. You should say if the Lord wills. Lord willing, we will be there. Because if I say I'll be there, then I'm committed to being there whether tomorrow gets here or not. How many of you give your word to somebody you borrow something from? Money. If somebody goes to bank and borrows, oh, a million dollars. I doubt if anybody in here owes that much money. But if you had a million dollars on uh, debt, one of the things the bank asks you to do is to commit to paying it back. All right? Sometimes they're not so sure of it, so they give you a physical. Make sure you're going to live long enough to pay some of this back. You got anybody who can back you up in case you fall? They call that striking of hands, and that's you're snared with your mouth. But anyway, you're committed to that, aren't you? Somebody asked me once, what if you commit yourself to paying back some money you asked for and the Lord comes? And you haven't fulfilled your commitment. Well, what do you do? I said, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't had to wrestle with that. I don't know. Well, I said, I know you may not be in debt. This person asked me, I said, well, you have a credit card? I do have a credit card. Well, what if you owe $300 at the end of the month and the Lord comes two days before the end of the month? You're still in debt, aren't you? I said, see, you're no fun to talk to. <laughs> I thought, you know what? It's a good question, isn't it? I can't answer all that. I'm not afraid to try. Just not too sure yet how the right answer would be for all that. But I'm saying this. You be careful what you commit yourself to. You be careful what you say you're going to do. If you're an employer, if you're a business owner, make sure your word is so good that people know you by your word. That if he said he will do it, he not only will do it, but if he said he will be here, he will be here to do it. See, this is how we're known. It is God who makes us able to be convicted by our words and our decisions and our commitments. The husband who says to the family, we're going on vacation. I'm going to take you all to such and such a town. That's my plan to do that. You know what they all do if he's an honest man? They all get excited, and they start looking for stuff to wear. We're so blessed in America. We got Florida clothes and home clothes. We got gardening clothes and church clothes. You know why they're acting like it's going to happen? Because of his word. That's how you all relate to God, too. You ask God to save you said, Lord, save me. I want to be saved. And he begins to show us what saved means. And we wonder sometimes if we're willing to commit ourselves to all of that. Well, you better. Jesus said, you count the cost before you jump into all this. You better count the cost because God wants all of you. Everything about you. He wants all of you that is of you to die. He wants all of him that is of him to live. And the Best way for you to put your word is we will do what the Lord wills. And whatever you do, as I've already said, in word or in deed, 
Do it all in the name of the Lord. Because the last days are marked by definition in the New Testament. The last days are marked by covenant breakers. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 38, describing the world. That stuff out there that are like Gibeonites. He said one of the things that described them, along with their fornicators and, and their lying and stealing, is that they're covenant breakers. People who don't keep their word who don't keep their word, who lie. And one thing about a Christian, we do not lie, we do not mislead, we do not taint anything for our advantage or to use people. We are given to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Help me, Lord, because that's the kind of people we are. Being separated from the world means that we're like that too. You can trust me. If, if I tell you I'll do something, I'll do it. If I don't think I can, I'll just say, well, this would be a right thing to say in a lot of cases. I better pray about that. I better inquire the Lord about that. I don't know if I can be there tomorrow or not. I want to do the job, ma'am or sir. We want to do the job. We got some schedules today and tomorrow. I want to be there maybe three days from now. Will that work? I'm going to try my best to get there then. If I can't, I'll call you before and tell you I can't come, but I want to be there. People want to know somebody they can trust in. A wife wants to look her husband in the eye and know that he's telling her the truth. He ain't lying to her. And vice versa. And your kids want to know that they don't have to lie to their parents. The truth is going to get them in trouble, but the truth will set them free. Just be honest. Mean what you say, say what you mean, and close with Psalm 141, and we'll stop. Psalms 141 and verse 3. This is one of those verses you might want to underline, outline, or sit down and just think about. Psalms 141 and verse 3. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. And keep or guard the door of my lips. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we give you thanks this morning for your word, our need to be conformed to its content, to have this word like light abiding in us so that we're never in darkness and to keep ourselves in the light of your grace so that you're always there and favor is always with us. May this word come in and affect that kind of a work in our life. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Because he has loved me Therefore I will deliver him Because he has loved me Therefore I will deliver him I will set him securely on high Because he is known my name he will call upon me and i will answer him i will be with him in trouble i will rescue him and honor him with a Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high. Because he has known 
I will satisfy him. 